This is uh, going to be episode, I think, 34. This is the season two of the Brilliant Podcast. And as we've mentioned before, once a month we're having a conversation with Isaac Cronin. Yeah, so anyways, a lot of what we're going to be talking about is radical history, specifically in the Bay Area, specifically of the pro or post-situationist variety. And uh, last week, or last month, we talked a little bit about sort of a general analysis of uh, politics today, 2016. And this month, we're going to talk a little bit more about Isaac's origin stories, which really is an origin story of radical history of that late 60s era. And uh, so, go ahead. Okay, well, um, so I, I grew up in um, the suburbs of Los Angeles. Um, my family moved there right after the war. My father was a, um, a doctor, decided that the promised land, he'd been in Texas, decided that the promised land was going to be California for the future of medicine, which wasn't that hard to, to imagine. Los Angeles, 1948, which is just uh, growing out the, out the doors. And he showed up. Um, very hardworking, grew up in an incredibly poor classic story, an incredibly poor Jewish family in New York. His father literally pushed a fruit cart around the Lower East Side. Classic story of, you know, working really hard, public university, made it through medical school, came to, came to Los Angeles, and that was when everyone was buying a house on the GI Bill. The houses cost almost nothing, and everyone could afford a house because the interest rates were so low. So you were paying, you know, $75 or $100 a month mortgage. Uh, incredibly hard worker, uh, incredibly ambitious, um, but at the same time deeply troubled. His father, according to the family history, had apparently abandoned the family on the Lower East Side and fallen in love with somebody and either gone back to Europe or just left the family uh, alone uh, in the Depression. So my father was forced into a very responsible role. And I guess that abandonment, he never got over. Anyway, that, that fatal flaw was working away. So he, he started this practice, then became a radiologist, and was able to quickly build a larger practice, but at the same time, he was always um, full of self-doubt. And in that era, and I guess today, Jews had this institutionalized form of self-loathing where they would um, often change the family name, which my father did, in order to get into medical school. They would have plastic surgery, which my father did. Oh, did he? Uh, in fact, in that era, and people don't realize this, kind of interesting story, uh, anyone who was a doctor or the immediate family of a doctor or a dentist never paid for any medical work. It was called professional courtesy. So there was this, all over the United States, you could get any uh, surgical procedure done and not pay for it. So we all had nose jobs. The entire family, every single one of us, whether we wanted to or not, we were just told we were going to have a nose job. So this was kind of a classic um, story of Jewish self-loathing. Anyway, he was, uh, became addicted to... Um, kind of classic for doctors in that era, alcohol, but also barbiturates. Mm. And he would write prescriptions that his staff would fill. Yeah. And there wasn't controlled substances in the same way then. So yeah. he was just involved in this. And uh, so anyway, um, that already, you know, seeing that from a very early age, but, you know, a progressive disease, of course, that really undermined my idea of the success story. Because here was this guy who'd managed to pull off the coup. He'd managed to have a... A family, an, an attractive, interesting wife, a successful medical practice, and he was just um, eaten alive with self-doubt. And my response to that, in some ways, I think was was the right one. It was to say, well, 
it wasn't just that he was uh, psychologically or emotionally messed up. It's that he wasn't satisfied with what the world was offering him. He really he was a smart guy, well read, typical classic um, cosmopolitan, very liberal, tolerant Jew, who was supposed to buy and be ha be happy with everything that that he had earned, which was you know a lot of financial success, and all of his most of his doctor friends who were Jewish were happy and they couldn't quite understand what was going on with him and he'd completely abandoned his religion didn't believe in it didn't make me bar be bar mitzvah he was a secular jew uh, totally not interested in having me go to synagogue or going to synagogue and a lot of people thought that that was part of his undoing is that he'd abandon his mm. religious roots for this uh, typical uh, approach and he was totally in love with hollywood and movie stars um, so one way this manifested itself was he um, was looking for drinking partners and he found the most notorious drunk in Hollywood to be his drinking partner which was Lee Marvin so Lee Marvin was a guy who would close the set for three weeks back then the movie star would go on a bender and they would just close the movie set and start when he was sober again so my father went on many trips to Mexico with Lee Marvin, and I don't even, who knows what they did, yeah. <laughs> right? Don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. But so. Donkeys were involved. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the year that, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, so this really undermined my sense of, you know, the, the traditional commodity society, the big payoff, happiness at the end of the rainbow. It, I, I just saw that this wasn't going to work. Um, and at the same time, my family was very involved in psychiatry. So all the Jews back then were in psychoanalysis. I was in psychoanalysis. As a teenager? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was in psychoanalysis. Huh. And I would sit on the couch and make stuff up because I really sure. didn't want to be there. Um, well, and also but, you weren't that interesting. Yet. Right, but on the other hand, I, at one point I wanted to be a psychiatrist and I wanted to be a doctor because I was following my father's footsteps. So another institution that crumbled um, before my eyes was psychiatry. And basically what happened was my, um, my father uh, passed away um, from his bad habits in uh, 1963 when I was 15. Oh. And at that time, I was seeing a psychiatrist uh, whose name was Richard Lieberman. I remember he was so ugly, he looked like a frog, really. He was just hideous, and I, I hated going there. So one day, he called my mother and I in, and he said, um, you know, um, to my mother, your son really is doing incredibly well. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, really? My father just died two months ago, and I'm okay. <laughs> okay, whatever. I don't want to go anyway. But he said something that was really interesting. He said, I really don't want to... I really think if, if your son, Isaac is going to continue to see me, he should pay for the, the treatment himself. And my mother looked at him like, oh, really? He's 15. Uh, he's in his last year of high school. I was graduating at 16. He does, we don't need the money for him to pay you. But he was trying to get rid of us. He was literally saying, I'm throwing you out because I really don't want to be involved in a Jewish professional family where the head of the household kill, uh, you know, overdosed. I, I don't want to have anything to do with this, which was really at that time, you know, another abandonment, right, by, by, the, by my father. So the second abandonment by the medical profession. So I was thinking, uh, yeah, I really don't think I want to be in this job, right, because I'm being kicked out. And um, so later, right after my father passed away, 63, um, she was uh, seeing a psychiatrist. 
and she had a breakdown, not surprising, um, and went into a, a mental a sanitarium. And when she was there, her psychiatrist uh, tried to have sex with her. And so she fled and left and came home. So it was like, you know, within just a few months, this whole thing crumbled for me, really. So that was very powerful. It was like, I mean, these are all building blocks of that world, right? Little pieces, bits and pieces. Because it doesn't, you know, you don't really give up or abandon the whole, that world entirely. But it was just like, you know, that was happening. So, at the same time, though, I was looking for a positive vision. Um, Actually, before you, you yeah. go there, and we almost never talk about popular culture. Uh-huh. Did you, have you watched Mad Men at all? A bit. Because, you know, it, it really feels like the Wasp version yeah. of the same world that it you're does. talking about it does. right now. It does. Okay. And speaking of popular culture, I was going to go there. Okay, so... I had a group of friends who were as bohemian as you could get in the San Fernando Valley of 1963-64, and we were looking for an alternative, to, even though the pop music scene had just begun to change with the Beatles, because before that it was pretty barren, we were all about being outsiders, and so what were we going to glom onto? Well, jazz. That was our, that was our world. So, and my father had actually introduced me to that because he was a New Yorker, grew up with Duke Ellington and Count Basie, and he played Ray Charles, so he was like on the liberal side of all that, even in the early 60s. But we created a world um, based on jazz. So we had a group of four or five of us. We would go to the uh, Lighthouse, which is a club in Hermosa Beach that play, you know, all the great jazz players of the time, and there were still a lot of them alive, fortunately, would play. And we would go to the mall, uh, one of the first malls in Los Angeles, and we would sit in these glass uh, booths at Wallach's Music City, and they'd let you break out new albums and play them on the record player. And so we would play these jazz records, and we'd all be in there, and walking by was this procession of what we would call normals, the suburban people. And we had this whole definition of us as opposed to them. It was us versus them. And so this was our identity back then. And I think in a way it was very snotty and crass, but it was also, you know, positive because we really... I mean, we didn't go into the... Um, Norman Mailer a few years later wrote something, or maybe around then, called uh, The White Negro. We, I mean, we didn't copy the slang. I mean, we did copy the slang a little bit, but we weren't literally trying to be like hip-hop blacks. We were just trying to find an interesting alternative world, and that was it for us. So, anyway, that was, you know, that was the positive and all the negative. And so, my father died um, in August of 1963. And I don't know if you, you're keeping up with the dates, but he was, all, he was 46, very young. And three months later, at the same age, Kennedy died was a very interesting coincidence for me. So we were all obviously still kind of in mourning. And then Kennedy died. So at that moment, uh, when we were watching the funeral for Kennedy, which we all did, of course, um, it kind of became this fusion in my mind of the personal and the political. I know it sounds kind of a bit of a stretch, but it really was. It was like, oh, you know, my father's personal, my personal tragedy of my father and the, and the tragedy of the country were kind of fused in my adolescent mind at that point. So, um, and I think that also contributed to my, my sense that um, everything that was going on at home was mirrored in the society. And you and I were talking before I came on the air about boredom, and I think that that was a really, really powerful force in my life, because even though I was supposedly having this ideal uh, childhood, I mean, obviously interrupted by a lot of things, but in terms of affluence and in terms of privilege and in terms of possibility... I found it all excruciatingly boring. I, right. I just, I was overwhelmed by that. And 
um, years later I did a videotape um, about pretty much this topic, um, Call It Sleep, and I remember walking by the family book collection, which was pretty large, and there was a book that I always kind of stopped in front of, uh, and the book was called Call It Sleep, and it was by Henry Roth. It was a book about anti-Semitism. I didn't even really know what was in the book. I just loved the title, because for me, everything I did was about being bored and trying to escape boredom. And I, and I didn't really locate the source of it in, um, you know, precisely as I do now. It was all about just this kind of um, undifferentiated suburban life that really, um, I was just excruciatingly bored and I, I would do anything to escape it. It's, it's funny how much this story parallels the exact same story 20 years later as punk rock mm -hmm. and... Um, and how, uh, yeah, just the, the parallels are amazing. And, and jazz being the music that mm -hmm. was nonconformist. And, and it was really pretty violent because, I mean, if you look at what happened, I mean, uh, almost everybody who was great died really young, even if they didn't die of drugs. Like, I was looking up, um, I just love this guitarist, Wes Montgomery. I was playing him recently, and um, he died at 45. Eric Dolphy died in his 30s. We all know the other stories. They were all really... <laughs> and um, I was looking back at my high school friends, um, who were in the group with me just to kind of recently kind of see of two of them one died of an overdose in his 30s and the other one who was my closest friend his girlfriend murdered him in a suburb in Arizona when he was 60 years old I mean I'm wondering what happened there so I guess I mean in a way I didn't realize I was a survivor of all this but you know apparently it's true so anyway my interest in psychiatry hadn't really stopped. So I switched, I went to college in Berkeley in 1964, and I had to declare my major in something, uh, liberal arts, so I decided I was, I was going to be a psychologist. And so being one of these kids who was like very practical and always wanting to try things out and not being really very intellectual, in the summer of 65, I uh, decided I was going to get a job as a kind of internship at the local veterans hospital. Uh, Veterans Administration Hospital in Sepulveda in the San Fernando Valley. And so I went in there and I lied and I said, I'm through with Berkeley. Um, I really want to be a government service too, which is the lowest pay grade <laughs> orderly at a, at a hospital like this and just give up my academic career. That's what I said. It's pretty bold. Because I, I, I knew that if I hadn't said that, they weren't going to hire temporaries. Hmm. And so they gave me the test, and I got the top score, and then I, I got called into the room by the head nurse who was really out like Nurse Ratchet out of, you know, totally. And uh, O'Grady was her name. And she said, um, well, you know, really? You really want to do this? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm really trying. I want to try this out. Maybe I'll go back to school. So they hired me, and they let me go through, and there was this orientation where I learned how to, you know, fold, empty a bedpan and hold, fold a hospital sheet. Yeah, change sheets. Yeah, change sheets, the whole thing. Perfectly make how to make a bed. Mm -hmm. And so half of it was medical and half of it was psychiatric. So the first day I remember I walked on the ward, I was wearing those starch whites with the keys jangling from my chain and all the other co-workers with me were African American from South Central no less. They had commuted in from South Central. I was the only guy under 30 something and the only white kid. And there we were on the ward. And it was filled with combat fatigue, i.e. Uh, PTSD um, victims from World War II and the Korean War. Shell shock? Yeah, shell shock. 
from, but they had they had no idea what was really going on. But from World War II and the Korean War, because this was '65, mm -hmm. so the ones from the World War II were in their 40s, and the ones from the Korean War were in their 30s. And these were all they were locked wards. So I walked in, and there they were. You know, there was the black and white battered TV uh, in the day room. There was just classic. You know, there was the people walking around mumbling, and they had just introduced this. Um, incredibly powerful drug called Thorazine, which was a very powerful, it was like the first generation of really powerful antipsychotics. And I think basically what it did was it, they kept on hallucinating auditorily and, and, and visually, but they just didn't get so freaked out by what they were seeing because they were so, they called it liquid shock therapy. And they would give doses that were like eight, ten times what they give now for these things. And they would gain weight, and they their their biggest the second biggest drug was cigarettes. They really wanted these guys to smoke, so they had a, a duty free, uh, tax free uh, store for it was like a closed institution, like an army base. And I remember the cigarettes were a dollar um, a carton, ten cents a pack. Outside they were twenty five, but there they were ten cents. So these guys would smoke three, four, five packs a day, and they would get yellow fingers from nicotine, and they would go around. And so, uh, as part of the um, indoctrination, the education, uh, they invited us, uh, told us that they were, uh, we were going to see uh, someone get electroconvulsive therapy. So, um, I You're thought... You're 19. 17. I lied about my age. I was okay. 17. My father had died a year and a half before. I'd been to college. Uh, this was like, I'd already been to college two years, I think. Started at 16, 64, 65, yeah. I'd, I'd finished my second year at UC Berkeley, and I'll get back to the FSM and all that, but yeah, I was there, and so we walked in, and there was this guy, and they gave him a shot. He was tied down, and back then they used huge doses of electricity that were really convulsive, ECT, electroconvulsive electro therapy. The goal was to just, you know, fry your brain to the, or, you know, scramble your brain, essentially, not fry, but, and they never knew or know how or why it works. It's just... Um, last resort. Anyway, so I, this, they turned on the electricity, and this guy started convulsing. I just fainted away. I've never <laughs> fainted before or after. You know, this was the first time. I just fainted away. I woke up in the hallway, you know. And she always, the old grady said something like, oh, there's always one that does that, you know. You know <laughs> remind us not to get you around uh, any, anything like this again. So basically what I learned, though, from this, before the Vietnam War had really, you know, revved up, which was a year later, 66, was that this is the outcome of war. So this was like my first, the first step in my, um, in, in my unraveling of what war was about, was seeing these people. And one of the funniest things that happened was there were... Uh, the common, one of the most common delusions, uh, and I've kind of figured out why, for people who've been in combat is that they think they're Napoleon. And so literally there was more than one Napoleon on, the one, on this one ward, and, and they would like fight for who would get to be Napoleon. Mm -hmm. They would literally have this existential moment where there were two Napoleons on the same ward, and they had to figure out who got to be Napoleon that day. Yeah. But, but what I figured out, and maybe this is, I'm, I'm putting too much of the Hegelian point of view in here, is that basically, like, these people knew that they were victims of, you know, they were complete pawns in the game, they were cannon fodder. So to be Napoleon is to be the one who decides. You know, like you're the guy who gets to actually make the decisions that turn the cannon fodder into victims. You're the, mm -hmm. the power. So I think that kind of makes sense in a way, right? If you're going to be somebody as a delusion of grandeur, you're going to be the general. It could be Eisenhower, but sure. somehow Napoleon it was a more glamorous figure in this process. So... 
another event comes up that was really key uh, in in the era, and um, fortunately, the SI wrote that great uh, decline and fall of the spectacular commodity economy pamphlet about the Watts riot to give some real perspective, which I still think, in looking back on when the SI is done, is one of the most important and groundbreaking and original texts of, of, of that period, or of any period. So I was working there, and the Watts riot happened. Uh, this is August, I looked up the date, second week in August, I believe, 1965. I'm at the Veterans Hospital, and the Watts riot happens. It's 15 miles away over, there's a mountain between us. Uh, but the whole city, kind of like 9-11, which I was at also, turns to like a giant forest fire. Literally, the whole city is covered in smoke. I mean, this is not a minor riot. Like we had, this is a riot where thousands of buildings are, are damaged, um, where an entire neighborhood of many, many blocks is set on fire, where many people, you know, it was, it was the biggest, one of the biggest um, civil uh, riots in the United States. Anyway, so this happens, and I, I believe I still went to work. I don't think there was, you know, it was safe on our side of the of the hill. So about a week after it happens, I'm at work, and James, who is my coworker, one of them from Watts, has red processed hair, very natty kind of guy, very very dapper. Um, he we're having lunch, and you know, I got along with these guys because we talked about jazz. I had a common, you know, language to speak to them, and. I mean, they must have thought it was, they couldn't really believe either that I was going to stay there at that job, but, you know, I just didn't tell them what I was really up to. So he says, yeah, come over and look at my trunk. So he, we go over and he opens up his trunk and there is like an entire men's haberdashery of stuff that, that has been taken, pillaged, looted, whatever word you want to use. From the Watts ride, it's all there, all brand new in bags. There's records, there's leather jackets, there's there's just a whole world of stuff. And and of course that makes sense, right? Because they literally looted hundreds of stores, and you know they didn't uh, they didn't burn the merchandise. And so you know I looked at it and I thought, can I really be, can I really buy this room? And this is like this is so sad. I can't really. I mean, I, pre I, I didn't criticize him, but I just thought, I can't really buy this from you. But then he says, you know, you really should come down and hang out with us in, um, in South Central because, like, we have, all the, we have these amazing garage sales every weekend, and we just all have garages. <laughs> and there's the real stuff. There's the washing machines and the dryers and the stereos. It's all there for sale. And it was, I think, for years, actually. <laughs> so this is actually another side of that um, that I thought was, you know incredibly powerful. So um, I think that at that point, because I identified so closely with that world, um, you know, I used to listen to um, all the rhythm and blues back then in the early 60s. There was like Ike and Tina Turner, all these great bands, James Brown. I mean, they were just entering the white world just mm -hmm. barely. You had to really dig to find them. You had to know what the soul station was, the jazz station. I remember I became a hero among my friends because my mother, out of guilt for what happened to my father, bought me a car, and, uh, well, she had some money. My father sold it. She sold my father's practice. I mean, her, our, our standard of living declined dramatically after that. I mean, we had to sell the house we were living in. My, she was able to sell my father's practice. She had to go back to work, or did go back to work. I mean, it all changed dramatically. But as kind of a transition point into that, she bought a car for me. And I remember, because it had FM radio, which back then was very new, you could listen to the jazz station. So my car was the only car that anyone wanted to ride in anywhere because we could listen to jazz on the radio. That was like, I mean, now it just seems incomprehensible that that would matter. But back then, you know, if you could have that 
sound of freedom beaming into your car. That was very cool. So another pillar of that world, besides, you know, the American dream of success, besides psychology or psychiatry as a helpful science, was this idea that the world was working out for everyone. That the idea that, you know, it was okay. Because I totally identify with these people. I mean, I thought, you know, these are the cool people. And if they're treated this way, that's how I kind of looked at it. They're the cool people. You know, they're the ones who really understand how to live, how to play music, how to have fun. If these people aren't treated properly, you know, I kind of, I felt that was like an injustice for everybody. I mean, I really, I, I, but the jazz was the way into that, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So, I, everything was kind of falling apart for me. I mean, at that time, it was all kind of crumbling, and yet there was a lot of positive things going on. So, I was fortunate, I feel, in some ways I feel like Forrest Gump. I mean, I know that sounds kind of loony and, and, and passive, and I, and I wasn't really passive after a certain point, but when I, when I left home, I was 16. I had just gone through this huge familial shock of losing a parent. Um, and in a way, I think my mother was kind of naive and, and didn't do me any great service because I had been accelerated, uh, skipped a bunch of grades when I was younger. So at the age of 16, I was told it was time to go to college. And I think, you know, this joke about the gap year because of Obama's daughter, uh, you know, I think it would have been smart, actually, for me not to do that because mm -hmm. I, I, was, I was thrown into this Berkeley. So I, I was ecstatic in a way because I, got to, I, I left the suburbs behind. But on the other hand, I was in way over my head. You know, I mean, I was being asked to li live, well, I lived in a dormitory, but I was, I was leaving home basically for good at the age of uh, 16. So, I was carrying all this baggage. I, I think I was cynical. I was unhappy. I was bored. Um, and I thought, you know, what could, what could change my perspective? And fortunately, I landed at the most interesting um, city in America at probably the most interesting time. Mm -hmm. And it was just, you know, that's why I say Forrest Gump. I mean, it was just... Um, if I had landed there... At the right age, 18, two years later, it would have been different. I mean, it would have been interesting, but there wasn't this kind of sea change happening in front of me that was the free speech movement. And so I think that was really fortunate in, in, in forming my perspective in many ways. What did you see in the free speech movement? Like, what, what were you there for? Well, first of all, what I saw more almost than the free speech movement was, was walking down the Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley in September of uh, 1964. I mean, it's really hard. I know this sounds like the old-timer waxing poetic, but it's really hard to communicate um, what that was like after... You know, I had a fairly sophisticated upbringing in the suburbs, but after growing up in the suburbs of Los Angeles. Because the first thing, and I've described to you, I think, a very uh, racial, incredibly racially segregated mm -hmm. city, and I made every, I think, possible attempt at my age to not put up with those confines, you know, to try and be cosmopolitan. And I learned that from my father, because he was really into, a, you know, a cosmopolitan worldview. And I really thank him for that. Um, but I walked down the street, and I remember the very first day seeing a lot of mixed-race um, kids and couples, and I thought, wow, this is so cool. I mean, yep. for me, that was cool, right? Sure. I mean, it was like you could finally... You're not be, in Simi Valley anymore. Yeah, you're not in Simi Valley anymore. You're not in Northridge, yeah. whatever. You know, it was like, that was number one, is to see mm -hmm. 
this I don't it wasn't racial harmony but it was it was just you know my idea of the jazz scene come to life right, right. on the streets right. of Berkeley and then there was this incredible concentration of um, bookstores many 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 and then there was um, record stores that were divided by categories so instead of just having a record store you had one record store people know Berkeley on the corner of Bancroft and Telegraph that only had jazz and classical music that was oh, it wow. that's all they sold and I was reading Downbeat magazine so I knew that every record when it came out I knew every um, artist that was on it and I was you know had a collection and I wasn't like fetishistically collecting but I had you know a few hundred records maybe more so I would go in that store and I would just talk to these guys for hours and the people who worked in the stores knew everything and they only played they had amazing sound systems and it was just going out onto the street it was just hard to imagine what that was like and very wonderful and so there were all these record stores and bookstores I mean, and probably at that age they were the people you wanted to grow up to become exactly Exactly. And this racially mixed street environment. And then there was a couple of art house movie theaters uh, on the street. And at that point, um, in 1964, you could not see foreign films anywhere. They just, you know, there was only a couple, maybe a dozen theaters in the U.S. that showed them. There was no television of that. You know, there were the European films were in their heyday. You know, all the European cinema was powerful and interesting. Not all, but a bunch of it. And you could actually go into theaters on Telegraph Avenue, and there was one on Northside, too, and see those movies. Um, Rashomon played in the theater um, on Telegraph for, I think, three years without leaving the theater. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was that kind of world, and then there were the coffee houses, um, and people were, it was like, you know, the classic cliche of everyone out in the streets in the coffee houses arguing loudly about politics, because the free speech movement was at its height, and there was, uh, there was the Mediterranean and a couple more, the Forum, kind of a corny name, and people were there, but at that point, you couldn't find espresso coffee in the United States or in, in the Bay Area except at those coffee houses and in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. If you wanted that drink, it didn't exist anywhere. I know all this sounds... I mean, of course, it started this way, but yeah. to, to have been there and experienced that was really interesting. And so then the free speech movement itself was very powerful, and it was essentially about... To th- uh, the, the idea of free speech and limiting political um, tabling and all that was one issue, but underneath it, and this is, I, I think, another thing the situationists were among the only people to catch up on, to, to, to catch on to, was that the free speech movement was really about a class of people, the, the technocrats and the future uh, white-collar workers, the future bosses, the future corporate uh, middle-level bureaucrats, seeing what was going to happen to them and this is the best of Mario Savio at that time, and rejecting that role to the extent that they could. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, I mean, this made sense to me, because I understood from my my limited critique of the normals that I really didn't want to do that. I mean, I I could see that, you know, there was going to be more boredom on the way, and sadly, the traditional left is a whole... Uh, alphabet soup of traditional leftist groups around then, Trotskyists and Bolsheviks and Maoists, uh, sees that that militancy, that anger, um, that unhappiness, that unrest, and turned it into a very channeled, focused critique of the Vietnam War. And for me, that wasn't nearly as interesting um, as the original critique uh, that they had made especially Mario Savio. So I was discouraged by that in a way. And 
it was, um, you know, from what I'd seen about, you know, with Watts, I mean, the Watts riot was not about anything except people who had been enslaved for hundreds of years uh, one day just deciding that that was one abuse too much and revolting. So, anyway, that was kind of a tragic turn for me. Um, and, in a way, the, the end of that period was that my mother, still in her guilty mode the same year, thought that I should go um, visit my cousin. Uh, and here's a kind of an interesting story. So my cousin had had a very preppy life. Her name was Anne. And um, she had fallen in love with the great-grandson of Theodore Roosevelt, <laughs> who was also the grandson of E.E. E. Cummings. Oh, wow. So he had quite this, you know, blue blood. Yeah. And he was a Roosevelt. So my cousin, who was three years older than me and very sophisticated, grew up and boarding, went to a boarding school in New York, had fallen in love with this guy, uh, Simon Roosevelt, um, whose father um, had actually uh, planned and executed the, the coup to overthrow Mossadegh in, in, um, in Iran, uh, Kermit. Kermit was his father, and he'd been mm -hmm. a CIA operative. So this was kind of a diabolical family as well. Anyway, she married this guy. Uh, she immediately got pregnant. And he, he got drunk one night and drove his motorci motorcycle 100 miles an hour on the West Side Highway and ran into a parked police, police car and died. So he was 20. She was 20. And it was kind of another, like, tragedy for me, another way things weren't working out. You know, it was like another story of um, success, a powerful family, everything seems to be going right, self-destructing. It was just like building up in me, you know. I mean, it was kind of added to there. It was I mean, Kennedy I didn't identify with so much as personally, but, you know, there was just a lot of of murder and mayhem going on that was undermining what I was supposed to be thinking at that point. So my mother sent me back um, uh, for Christmas to visit her, and she had inherited the family apartment, so of course she had a beautiful apartment in New York. She was, I was 17, and she was maybe 20, 21, widowed already, and her son was staying with her mother, and she had this job, and the job was she was the coat check girl at the most glamorous disco in New York at the time. And it was called Arthur. And just a historic note. So Arthur was started by, by Richard Burton's um, ex-wife. When Richard Burton left to marry Elizabeth Taylor, he left this woman. And uh, her name was Sybil. Sybil Burton, and she started this glamorous disco, and somehow my cousin, I guess because of her Roosevelt name, which was Golden, got a job as the coat check girl there. So I would go there for two weeks. I went there every night, and back then the drinking age in New York was 18, and I was 17, so I, I slid by. And, you know, I was smoking cigarettes, of course, and stuff like that, so I thought I was really cool, and I would go to this club um, for free and drink and drink and drink, and... Um, they were all the whole. There was only one club to go to, really. So everyone who was on the A list at that time would come to this place, and it was like uh, Leonard Bernstein and Andy Warhol, and you know, on and on and on and on, and Julie Andrews, all the big, all the big shots, and they would we would dance, and it was like a disco, and it was kind of fun. But really, I was seeing how superficial it was to a certain extent, and. So I would sneak out around 11 or 12, um, and I would go to um, jazz clubs. And once again, I really felt at home there. And I remember one of my uh, biggest heroes at the time was this white blues singer uh, from Mississippi who had totally figured out how to be black without seeming to be black, and his name was Mose Allison. 
don't know if you've ever heard him. Vaguely. Yeah, he did a couple of songs that were big hits like Parchment Farm, and he had this great boogie-woogie piano style in his voice, and you couldn't really tell if he was white or black. I mean, he was elegant and all that, but... And so, you know, I really identified with him. I thought, you know, this is a guy who's figured out, you know, how to be in this world as an artist and be radical, but not completely give up his own identity. Mm-hmm. And it was a really strong role model for me. So, that kind of, I mean, that's kind of the end of that, that epic. I mean, maybe we could go back and revisit some things if you have something... Well, I... I mean, mo- yeah, mostly what is interesting about how you're telling the story is that you're very much doing the setup for getting exposed to SI, the idea yeah, of the SI. Right. The, yeah, exactly. Which is an interesting story in itself. Yeah, I guess just just to, to talk about this story from a modern perspective just uh-huh. for a little bit. Sure. One of the, thing, the things I say about the internet and one of the sort of great tragedies of the internet which is sort of an unforeseen consequence, which mm-hmm. is usually where interesting things happen, is in the unforeseen consequences. Sure. Is that you could basically describe the internet as destroying counterculture. Mm-hmm. And partially why that's happened mm-hmm. is because it sandblasted away the edge places where you went right. to experience the culture that you that you preferred to normal mm-hmm. culture. So, you know, the internet has made it no longer necessary to to go into the little record shops and flip through thousands and thousands of records before you find the three or four that are meaningful to you. And you you don't need to do that anymore on yeah. the internet. You can actually sit down with someone who's twelve years old who's into the exact same type of jazz that you're into and have a real adult conversation with them because they've read all of the things that you need to read to be an expert in the genre that, that you're talking about. Yeah, and I, you know, I can't um, emphasize too much that the actual lived experience of being in those moments, like, even for me, uh, is, I don't want to make a big deal out of it, but just like, this is why I feel a little bit like Forrest Gump, the fact that I was... Um, happened to be in New York uh, during 9-11 and um, was standing, I lived in Brooklyn, which is half a mile or so across the river from uh, the tip of Manhattan. Yeah, tip of Manhattan, World Trade Center, literally that famous scene of the Woody Allen Manhattan walking on the promenade is right there where I lived. And seeing the second plane um, uh, hit the tower and hearing the sound actually and seeing Manhattan disappear, uh, you know, it made such a strong impression on me um, that I was literally moved to immediately start writing a book or editing a book about that experience, uh, which got published and you know uh, was out by May of 2002. And I'm sure if I hadn't had that experience in that way, I just kept thinking, you know, I mean, I know a lot about social and political history, but I don't really know that much about terrorism because specifically because as a you know situationist, we weren't supposed to be interested, you know, we were supposed to know about it but not be actively involved because it was an act that was not democratic that everyone couldn't do anyway. Mm-hmm. So just that's an example of like having that physical, emotional, sensual experience of such a cataclysmic event produced a very physical reaction in me mm-hmm. of wanting to, of wanting to understand that, and I know I've listened to a bunch of music recently with some young friends, and they wanted me to tell them about jazz and uh, or explain what what you know kind of cut through the short list of what they should listen to, which everyone is interested in now. Digest and con- which is what you're saying, condensations yeah. and shortcuts, you know. And I'm willing to do it, but I can't really, um, I, I you know, the experience of having that guy um, open up his truck. <laughs> And show me that surprising booty or loot, and and explaining to me 
in his own words why it was fair that he got that and having to agree with him you know that's you know you can't really replace that with any uh, internet ex in my opinion with any which i guess is what you're saying right you can't it's absolutely not really well, not. It's, it's not even just about replacement it's about something has something is gone mm -hmm. and yes it's been replaced by something but the thing that's replaced it is is created something that's entirely different and, and more or less not related. So obviously you can read a BuzzFeed article that says the five don't miss albums from <laughs> from from the early sixties jazz. I mean, we can find that article no problem, but and 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 them getting it from you for them is the closest they're gonna have to that real live experience. But obviously that's you were a spectator of that moment too. Uh -huh. But you were just a spectator in the way that was culturally appropriate in the early 60s, right. as opposed to today, which is, you know, when we talk about spectacular reality, we're talking about this existential separation mm -hmm. of the thing that is the thing. Right. And and now we're talking about yet another existential separation. Right, another level of abstraction yeah. on top. And I guess what was interesting, maybe I'm thinking about my relationship to African Americans, is that, you know, given so much proximity and so much going on in kind of difficult circumstances, it kind of made sense that I would be gravitate towards that as a perpetual subject of interest and that I would feel comfortable, uh, you know, not like inappropriately moving in and out of that world, but going to it. For example, I remember now that in, um, in 1965, uh, when I was on that trip to New York, I saw that, I think this is an accurate memory, I saw that James Brown was playing at the Apollo. And of course, you know, being precocious musically, I knew exactly what that meant and who he was and how important he was. So I went to the Apollo. Wow. And in Harlem. And I went, and I, there was only a couple other white people there. But I was okay, you know, because they thought, well, if you're here for that, that's cool. You know, and I saw James Brown at the Apollo do his whole thing with his cape and, and, and everything. You know, and I think that that kind of non-mediated or not so mediated experience allowed me to be much more comfortable in that world without feeling, like, I didn't feel like I was a tourist. Even though I didn't have that upbringing and I didn't have that history, um, I felt like I had experienced it uh, firsthand um, immediately enough that it was okay for me. I didn't have to explain why I was there. I didn't feel like a tourist. I felt like, you know, someone who, um, from another angle, appreciated that experience. And I think that, you know, it's hard to do that when you're mediated by that. You, you, sure. you, you're, there's a sense you are a stranger to the, even if you don't want to admit it or it's not what you want. You know, there's that secondhand experience that's really... Yeah, I mean, I think in a later episode we should talk more critically about about your role in, in that moment and, and sort of what it led to. Uh -huh. I think that, that at this point what's important is sort of to say that you basically are one of the last people left from the 60s, yeah. for lack of better language. Yeah, yeah. And I suffered, through the, I suffered, I think, through all the highs and lows of the 60s, because obviously there was a lot of transcendent moments as well, mm -hmm. um, and those transcendent moments always push me towards the sense that a community was possible and how to define that became difficult but a, a community that was as different different as possible from what I was supposed to experience when I was young and it, you know it's I mean my mother um, was was also raised in a very tolerant open Jewish liberal household in New York but she never she couldn't understand why somehow this wasn't okay. Everything that happened, mm -hmm. as sad as it was, she could never grasp why I would head off in another direction. 
she never understood why I didn't want to be a doctor. Just, you know, I mean, I've laid out an incredibly convincing argument for why I wouldn't want to pursue that profession. Mm -hmm. You know, it was heartless and mercenary and cruel to me personally, right? And so, um, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't bridge that gap. And um, well, just just to back up one one step, I, uh -huh. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Really, what you're talking about, especially when you see Kennedy and then map Kennedy emotionally to to sad moments in your own life, uh -huh. you're talking about the end of sort of grand or meta-politics, right. like, like the, the, the big institution, whether it's medicine, America, mm -hmm. or whatever, these things you had felt betrayed, betrayed you and, and, and you were coping with that. And the way in which you coped with it was sort of turning to the cultural. Mm -hmm. and As a bridge, you know, it, didn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't an end in itself. That whole African-American jazz and that world mm -hmm. of that, was, a, and Bohemia in general, <coughs> was a bridge to a critique. I mean, it was like a kind of transitional... Sure, but that's uh, coming later. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess to speak to that, I'm not sure what it looks like to, to live in the cultural today. Because on the one hand, it's incredibly sophisticated, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the general, like the, the sophisticated music listener today, they have access to so many genres, so mm -hmm. many different options. It's staggering. <clears throat> it is, it's absolutely staggering. But their opportunity to live any of it is very small. Mm -hmm. I mean, very expensive, very commodified. You know, well, that's the ideal trade-off for the system. They don't want real actors. They want they want to create. So another thing. That you, so that that was like it's an interesting point. When we showed up um, in Berkeley in 1964, it's hard to um, overemphasize how uniform and homogeneous and narrow the range of choices were in every in every category. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally everyone, whether it was an FBI agent or a student or a teacher. Um, am I leaving anybody out? Dressed the same. Right. You could not tell people apart. I mean, they're, they're, wearing, they're wearing jackets. Yeah, they're, they're wearing, wearing jackets, ties. they're wearing ties, or if not ties, but they're wearing jackets, they're wearing sports coats, uh, uh, slacks. There was the 64 65 was kind of the, the moment when people's hair got longer cause, you know, for various reasons. But until that point, you know, there was the, the range of choices, whether it was in food, even music. I mean, jazz was like an acceptable category, but it wasn't fragmented or, or mm -hmm. you know, the British sound. Well, the British sound was part of pop. It wasn't separate from it. It was, it was all really the same. You know, the whole range of choices in every aspect of life were so narrow and so confining that you could just see... Literally, these people at that the, the the decision makers at that moment realized they had to expand the choices, or just risk you know um, a revolt based on monotony, and so you know they were very clever in figuring out a way to provide this almost endless variety that doesn't really require true participation, and that was a brilliant move, I think. And I assume Telegraph Avenue was a was. A Radically different, even then. It was like radically it was blue different. jeans. It was. There was. There were still. You know, and there were. There were certain ways you could tell a radical. They wore blue jeans, uh, a tweed coat with patches, and carried a green book bag, and had long sideburns, and smoked a pipe. If they were, you know, right. this was like right. there was a there was a uniform, and it was just developing then. Yeah. Because if you look at what people wore in the civil rights movement, they were totally normally dressed. There was no, you know, those people looked normal. I mean, their behavior was not normal, but their appearance was indistinguishable from any other person, right? That, that what, was your, what was your exposure at that time to city lights and, the, and I guess what we'd call the, the, the literary movement that was happening at that time? Going over to San Francisco was like very exotic. 
it was a fair, was, it was involved a ferry usually? No, 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 no. We, we could drive over. That was, you know, um, they, they, uh, the bridge was, you know, you could go over the bridge. But, but going over there was very exotic, and it was like another world. There wasn't this sense that the two were, um, that the, you know, th that it was the Bay Area. It was San Francisco had its own very special identity. Mm. And I remember going over there the first time, right after I came to the Bay Area, and, um, going to North Beach, and it just seemed like a whole other world. I hadn't really... I mean, I'd sort of been exposed to the Beatniks. Um, uh, I'd read Howl, but um, by then, their power had actually eclipsed. I mean, they had been displaced in a way by the civil rights movement. Their cultural power had kind of waned. Oh, so Berkeley really was the place. Yeah. More than North Beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah. And did you have any exposure to Rex Roth at that time? No. No, I was. Uh, it's it's funny. I mean, like, it, I guess it was just a factor of my age. But I mean, when I when I first came to Berkeley, I was so young and so kind of insecure and just trying to figure out the lay of the land. That um, I mean, humorously, my mother was terrified that if I went and lived in an apartment at seventeen, at, you know, in that era, it would just be crazy. So she she wouldn't let me live in an apartment. So th mm -hmm. this was like the hilarious transition. So I said, well, you know. If I can't live in an apartment and I hate the dormitory, what's left? She said, "Well, why don't you join a fraternity?" Uh -huh. <laughs> so, so I joined a fraternity. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. I had. To, I mean, I just wasn't going to stay in the dorm, so I did just to see what it was like. I mean, it was a frigging nightmare. I mean, it was unbelievable what was going on there because the world was all falling apart, and they were all playing bridge, and you know, <laughs> they're all you know just like oblivious to the whole thing. Uh -huh. So they basically just kicked me out after a semester. I would oh, really? show up all dressed in weird clothes, and yeah, yeah. I just it was it was a really funny. Um, I mean, people who know me can't believe I ever even spent a semester there yeah. but you know that was like it was interesting to see how backward people were and how little I mean there was we used to fight about they wouldn't let me play the music I loved in there so I realized that I had to get out of there it was kind of funny anyway so um, I, I I feel like I don't want to be you know take this the direction that a lot of people of my generation take I mean I can see the value of having this whole world of you know of culture of politics um uh of radical information available, and I, I don't really want to suggest that it's not an authentic, I mean, it's, it's not a decent way to get information or, or progress, but, I mean, you're helping me a bit, sure. offering me this more um, sympathetic view. But I, I, I really think that people of my generation do have an obligation to recognize all the mistakes that we've made and also uh, not to fall into this kind of dismissive idea that if it's not... Um, you know, an authentic traditional experience on, on any level that it's still not valuable. Well, I think that this is enough for this uh, for this month. Obviously, we're going to pick it up in 1965. Okay. Next time around, and sure. uh, that's going to be a rich period for a lot of people. But this period, in in a way, actually is more interesting mm -hmm. because it's it's it unstructured, right? It in a way, you know? it hasn't been told a thousand times. Yeah. The other part. Yeah, know? yeah, exactly. I mean, the next chapter has been told a thousand times, and so figuring out a way to, to talk about it. Which uh, that's a bit more critical will be, yeah, will be useful. Okay. Thank you very much. Sure. Fun. <laughs>